Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest marketing team. Today, we're debuting our very first episode of Editors Unedited, where we will hear authors in conversation with their editor here at HarperCollins. On this episode, we're talking to Kate Harris, author of Lands of Lost Borders. Kate is a writer and adventurer, recently named one of Canada's top 100 modern-day explorers by Canadian Geographic. In her debut, Lands of Lost Borders, she maps out her journey by bicycle along the Silk Road. While studying the history of science and exploration at Oxford and staring down a microscope for a doctorate at MIT, Harris set out by bicycle down a short section of the fabled Silk Road with her childhood friend. Forget charting maps, naming peaks, leaving footprints on another planet, what she yearned for was the feeling of soaring completely out of bounds. Part travelogue and part memoir, she shares an illuminating and thought-provoking story that dares us to challenge the limits we place on ourselves and the natural world. She shares the stories borders tell, the limits they place on both wild and human life, and muses on the human need to explore, the basic longing to learn what in the universe we're doing here. Like Rebecca Sonnet and Pico Ayer, Kate Harris offers a travel account at once exuberant and meditative, wry and rapturous, and above all, full of hope. Here's her interview with editor Matthew Dodonna at Day Street Books. Matt, take it away. All right, hey Kate. So I know that we've had so many conversations about this um, once in person, which I was so happy for. Um, but what's so impressive to me when I look at your book is virtually any page I open to is just a stunning, um, there's stunning revelations and passages and information revealed. And I just want a little more background on how you decided to mix the um, history of travel with your personal journey in this book. Yeah, well, I, I guess in part I grew up reading travel books, and that was sort of my window to the, the wider world. Um, and I grew up kind of exploring vicariously. And so it seemed pretty natural to, by the time I actually got to go out in the world for myself and, and wander around, um, it seemed the thing to do that when you come home you you write about it and um, I couldn't write about travel without thinking of all the people that had gone before me and um, the books that I'd read that they'd written and so it, it just sort of seemed the kind of natural question and answer between my experience and, and what others had had seen or done in the parts of the world I'd gone to and and elsewhere um, so yeah I think as a, a voracious reader it just seemed natural to bring in other other writers, other voices. Sure. So maybe we should back up a little bit and talk about really the template of the book, which is your uh, 4,000-odd journey on the Silk Road with your best friend, Mel. And Marco Polo, back to that question about writer using writers as a template, Marco Polo, who's obviously a famous explorer, is kind of used as the through line of this story. Um, obviously, there's all these mythology and legends about did he actually go on the journey? Was it really him? Did he visit all these places? Um, 
did you always have him in mind as as a symbol of the story or was that something you had to kind of work through when you were writing the piece Marco Polo yeah he certainly inspired me to to want to see the Silk Road for myself someday I, I as a kid I came across this book as a children's book about his travels that it belonged to my mom and so her her maiden name was inscribed in the front inside cover and um, it just seemed incredibly uh, I mean, exotic, you know, these images of Polo leading camel caravans across the Taklamakan Desert and um, visiting sort of um, kind of bazaars and uh, markets and places like Samarkand and Bukhara. It all just, I found it thrilling, um, turning those pages and, and seeing those pictures. It was mostly pictures. Um, and then as I got older, I sort of returned to this childhood love for Marco Polo by reading his unabridged uh, book about his travels, which he actually didn't write. It was ghostwritten for him. Um, and the book was a huge disappointment. You know, he basically lists what commodities are available on the Silk Road. I mean, the guy was a, a merchant, not a, an explorer, really. And his, his fascination with the Silk Road mostly concerned what could be bought and sold along it. And so this was a big letdown to me because I had this very like, romantic vision of him um, exploring. And instead, he was, he was mostly interested in the bottom line. And so that really inspired me to see the Silk Road for myself and to see it in the ways that um, Polo didn't, you know, as a place of incredible wildness and um, cultural richness in the trading hubs, not just what could be, what could be purchased and, and passed along. Um, so yeah, it, it was definitely, he was someone I kept revisiting during the trip and, uh, certainly in the writing about it, you know, what he saw in certain places versus what I saw. Um, so he's a nice kind of counterpoint to the journey Mel and I made. Yeah. I love that passage of the book because you describe it. You say that his work is, is almost boring at times, right? And it's so detailed that he had to have gone on the journey. Like, otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are all these claims. That's right. Yeah, that Polo, you know, maybe he never actually went on the Silk Road, and he, his book just consists of kind of hearsay and, and rumors from other traders who had actually traveled further than him. There are some critics, critics that thought he only went as far as, as Turkey, as the Black Sea. Um, but I am pretty convinced he went because the book is just, it's so detailed. It just kind of drones on and on about, you know, rubies you can buy here and elephant teeth you can buy here um that if you were making it up surely you would make it more interesting right right um well talking about action i know that your prologue starts with you and mel border hopping in tibet and saying you know you don't want to give the china you don't want to subsidize the chinese government by paying the the border fee and how did you decide to start the book there um was that always a um a starting point or did you need to start with some sort of action in, in media res, per se? Um, I think it was always the starting point in my mind. I mean, that was really where my obsession with borders began when we sort of snuck across this, this boundary that exists to some people and doesn't exist to others. And as it turned out for Mel and I, it, it didn't really exist for us. You know, people didn't care that we had snuck across it. Um, the Chinese government wasn't at all concerned with our, our presence there. And um, it was sort of harsh awakening to realize that that border, that border is mostly for um, Tibetans. It's to control their movements and their 
their freedoms. Um, so that that was where the trip sort of turned from an adventure to a deeper exploration for me. It, it went from being just kind of a, not a lark, but, um, you know, travel for the sake of travel versus travel for the sake of searching out answers to questions. Um, and for me, the real question was, what are borders and, and how do they manifest so very differently for different people and at different times? Um, but it was also certainly, you know, a fun kind of adrenaline-filled uh, beginning to a book. So it kind of used both purposes. Yeah, absolutely. How how has the concept of, of borders and nationhood evolved for you um, since going on the journey and and now talking about it? I know you, you published this book um, in Canada first, so... I know you've been on the road a lot and, and obviously talking it up. Um, so how's that concept changed over over the last few years? Well, it's interesting. That, that first border crossing where we snuck into Tibet um, really left me with a, a grudge against borders, you know, just really resenting the ways they, they lay down the line and the law um, in ways that seem very unfair and very random and arbitrary. Um, in North America, we happen to have passports that are really valid in most places in the world and um, if you're if you're just born by fluke in a place like Tajikistan it's very hard to to move um, and so I I set off down the Silk Road really with this, this grudge in in mind and um, I wanted to kind of yeah look at all the ways that borders were, were um, breaking the world into into bits into fragments and, and separating us and ultimately, what what happened on the journey is um, I met again and again these examples of, of borders making or shaping the world in in unexpected, maybe not exactly good ways, but unexpected ways. Um, you, know, you find borderlands that are refuges for wildlife because people aren't allowed in these these buffer zones between countries anymore, and so the wildlife moves back in and, and thrives in our absence. Um, and then. You know, there are borders that are, are mostly in our head. Um, in Tajikistan, you look at how nature conservation or wildlife conservation happens, and it's uh, largely funded by trophy hunting, which is kind of a repugnant notion to us back here, you know, the idea that you mm. you kill animals um, and that, that funds the money that people will pay to, to have a, a trophy on their wall of a Marco Polo sheep that actually is what's protecting the sheep because in a place like Tajikistan, there are very few other options. Um, there's not the funding to do conservation the way we do it here with fines and fences. Um, so yeah, I found myself, my own notions about borders being upended kind of at every, at every turn. Um, and I think I have a much more um, nuanced understanding of how, how walls play out in the world for better and for worse. And I do think, you know, borders as bureaucracy are something to rail against, and I will continue to do so. But um, to just say I, I resent borders overall is um, too black and white a statement. And I think that was the big take home of the trip for me, is just that everything is complicated, everything has two sides, um, you know, and, and sort of walking the fence like trying to stand on top of the fence and see both sides is, is really the goal of travel and exploration and maybe especially writing. 
do you get frustrated when people talk about these borders or socio-political economic issues without not having gone to the place? You know, is, is traveling to the place in which they're discussing equally important? I, I certainly think traveling there, whether um, in person or in words, I mean, I, I do think traveling through reading is, is pretty valid if, if, you, if you take the right approach. Um, it's so, so key to having a, a more realistic version or understanding of the world, um, especially far from places that, you know, we sort of import or impose our own assumptions about how the world works on other parts of the world. And um, it's very easy to judge things from a, a distance. But when you go to places and, and meet people and see their, their lives and their longings are not that different from our own, um, that kind of does away with that sort of sweeping thinking about how things should work. Um, so I, I do think that's one of the, the beauties of, of travel and firsthand encounters in, in far-flung places is that it, it it literally makes you see the world differently and um, perhaps not just how you see that place, but how you see your own country and your own place back home. Um, yeah, so that, that's the real, the real value of travel is how it, it shakes you up and, and throws all your old assumptions out the window, basically. Yeah, and it's so easy to view you and Mel as obviously the two protagonists, main characters, but there's so many, there are myriad characters in this book who pop in and out, and it's sort of akin to the process of travel, right? You see these people briefly, and then you're on your way to the next country or region. Um, Did you ever feel this willingness to just pause and say, you know what, I really like this place here. I want to stay here for, for a month, two months, three months, or was that desire to go to the next place just so overpowering? Definitely the former. I, I really wish we could have lingered longer in, in so many places along the Silk Road, and we were kind of forced to move along by visas. Um, tourist visas, especially in Central Asia, were incredibly um, strict and, and limited, so you'd have, you'd have to enter a country on a certain day and leave you know, 25 days later on a, on a specific day. So we were really racing against that clock that was kind of imposed by bureaucracy. And we actually cleared a full year to do the trip and ended up finishing in 10 months, not because we wanted to rush to the end by any means, but just because visas kind of forced us along. Um, and that was one of the big, big frustrations of the trip. And maybe travel generally is how it's sort of fleeting your encounter with the places, even if you're only biking you know, 25, 30 kilometers a day through it and spending multiple days in, in communities along the way, um, it still feels like a very superficial um, introduction and exposure to a, a country. And I really finished the trip um, longing to have long conversations with people and conversations I could better understand and to to plant myself in, in one place and instead of skipping through the world on a bicycle, just letting the world kind of change and happen around you um, because that was definitely not our, our experience on the Silk Road. We really did have to to keep moving, albeit at a, a painfully slow pace at times. Yeah, there's, there's so many, for people who haven't read the book, there are... Um, 
it really does feel like you're on a bike journey um, on the Silk Road, which is the intent, but it's dizzying at times, right? There's you're, you're fighting the elements and time and exhaustion, and there are times in which you and Mel convince, your, convince yourselves you're going crazy or are talking to yourself <laughs> to make sure you're not going crazy. And could you talk a little bit about that experience of like just mental and physical ex- exhaustion and how you overcame that over the 10 months? Yeah, we were certainly pretty burnt out at different stretches. I think definitely went crazy, like medically crazy. Right. Um, yeah, basically on a trip of that length, you know, when you're sharing sort of a life and a, a tent and an experience with someone day in, day out for, for 10 months through all these these countries that have previously only existed to you on, on maps, you know, a name on a map, um, it is it is deranging in kind of a, a good way ultimately I think but um, everything you you knew about the world and and the predictability of daily life is sort of gone You're, and that's part of the, the joy of travel I, I love that sense of not having any idea what what's around the next bend not knowing what you're going to eat who you're going to meet where you're going to sleep where you'll find water next um, it's sort of thrilling newness at every pedal stroke but it is exhausting after a while um i think what enabled mel and i this you know our personal relationship like we've been friends since we were 10 years old we go way back and have sort of lived through life's most pivotal moments kind of side by side like going through elementary school and high school and having adventures in university and i think by the time of the trip we were we were basically at the point of being almost sisters like we never feel the need to just keep a conversation going for the sake of filling a silence or yeah the need to interact we can be very comfortably kind of solitary in a side-by-side sense like reading in the tent or just riding our bikes and not talking and I think that sort of solitary space within the shared trip was was crucial and, and kept us sane um and meant we didn't get completely sick of each other and as for the the sort of physical side of the trip um you can only you can only bike so far in a day and and when the goal of the trip really isn't just to you know push yourself it's not an adrenaline fest you're not trying to prove how far you can bike in a day um really the slower you go the more meaningful the the journey when you're on a bike trip and um we basically just push it for maybe like bike for a total of five hours a day and some days that meant we would cover 20 kilometers if the road was really rough and some days that meant we'd cover 100 um but we never you always want to leave something in the tank i guess on a trip like this you always want to finish each day with some energy hopefully in your your batteries um, in case you have to get on the move again quickly or or at least because you have to wake up the next day and do it all again. Um, but yeah, certainly by the end of the trip, we were both pretty exhausted on on every possible level, like physically, mentally, emotionally, pretty ready to come home. Um, but yeah, I feel like that's that's sort of the point you're trying to get to when you you want to push yourself in a in another place. 
It, um, you and Mel are such good compliments to each other too, and I'm sure I, I've had some nightmare travels and I've had great travels. And what do you think yeah. makes a good travel partner? Um, sense of humor, which Mel definitely has in spades. Yeah. She's hilarious. Um, an appreciation for the absurd, which again Mel <laughs> excels at. I think just you, you're when you travel, so much of it is just you're in a state of bewilderment. You don't really know what's going on or what people really mean when they're talking to you in, in, in another language. Um, and to be with someone that can like see the wonder and absurdity of that um, is crucial. And for me, uh, you know, traveling with a reader, someone who, who likes to spend time just with their nose in a book, um, which Mel definitely is that kind of person. And, um, yeah, someone who, who's excited by the unknown as opposed to daunted by it, because that could be pretty crippling in terms of the spirit of a trip. I'm taking notes. So belief, <laughs> in, belief in the absurd and sense of humor. Um, when We've talked a little bit about you documenting the trip and taking a lot of time to journal, and that not being such an easy task once one you're biking and so after you're you finish you're you're physically mentally exhausted and now you have to kind of sit down to to write and record everything you did were there things you had to train yourself to do or or books you read or advice you got about documenting such a long span of time well in a way in a way yeah we'd be exhausted and and there'd be that side of that challenge to to getting things down on on the page but at the same time you don't have that much else to do like your your sole job in life is to turn the pedals and then you know put something on the page each day and it's really a, a liberating simplicity um and i often found i mean initially in the trip i was so exhausted that that writing was sort of a a chore but it was also a refuge you know it's, it's your space to be able to process some of what you've seen and been through during the day and um, it's something different um, so I I didn't find it too hard to to take notes as I was going certainly people would look at my journals and like I wasn't writing full sentences or full paragraphs many days I would just have jottings of like impressions and images that occurred to me and, and often I'd be biking along and I would I would see you know the light falling on the mountains in a certain way and it would bring to mind some like sentence or image and I'd just stop there and jot it down so it was kind of a an in process sort of documentation um, and we were also filming the trip and um, I love photography so I was taking photos as well and often when I felt too tired to write in a way that um, I thought would do justice to the scene or experience or the, the vision of what's on the horizon. I would, I would take photos and, and know that I would get to it later. And we would often have long pauses in cities because we were waiting on visas for the next country or, um, yeah, mostly for that reason. <laughs> and during those spells, you know, when I'd be in the capital of Azerbaijan, I'd write about what we'd seen in the rest of Azerbaijan and in Georgia and um, go through the photos and, and almost do some of the, the deeper 
thinking and processing during those pauses. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of a it was nice to have a reason to write things down, and um, I knew I I wanted to write about the trip in some bigger way, or at least I, I hope to. And yeah, it gave some some meaning to the days, I guess. That could otherwise just be a blur of biking. So if you were to go back, like I obviously the book is written and you, you know what to expect in, in, in some turns, but if you were to go back as a quote-unquote writer, would, would what you record or what you choose to see feel different? Oh, boy, yeah. If I, had to, if I could go back and bike the Silk Road again and, and write down things differently, um, I think I'd, I'd pay a lot more attention to dialogue um, for one thing, Mel's super funny, and she said all kinds of illuminating, hilarious things along the trip that I, I thought I would remember, and then, you know, an hour later, I can't I can't summon them again. Um, fortunately, I, we were filming a whole bunch of the trips so that, that proved helpful on that front, both, like, things Mel said and what people were staying with said. Um, I think I'd also... I, I mean, I, I would like to do, be able to do this to save time um, I would write down less of what I wouldn't ultimately use I you know I came back with just stacks and stacks of black moleskin journals from the trip and writing the memoir was really a, a matter of paring all that material down and figuring out what I wasn't going to use and I think when you're in the thick of a journey maybe you can never know in advance what's what's going to matter you know what what encounters or, or experiences are going to speak to the larger emotional arc of a, of a journey, um, a, a work of, of literary nonfiction, which is probably, I don't know that anyone knows that. That sounds so daunting, the idea of looking through dozens of moleskins and figuring out where you start and how, what's your yeah. entry point. Was there, was there a particular section or region that was the hardest to write? Um, Tibet by a long stretch mm-hmm. so in 2006 and that's when we stuck across this checkpoint and um, all kinds of madness ensued and then the second chapter on Tibet is when we returned to the um, Tibetan Autonomous Region in 2011 and um, it was a completely different place it was like unrecognizable to the place we had been to previously and part of that was we traveled through a different section of it um, on a different highway, but um, we m- went to Lhasa both times, and it was it was like a different city. The level of like surveillance and oversight by the Chinese had ramped up considerably, and so writing about writing about this occupied country in which you're essentially a tourist. You know, we were just kind of joyriding. There wasn't much joy to it, but we were joyriding through this regime that Tibetans. Um, Set themselves on fire to escape. Like they, they're very, very oppressed there. Um, and when I got home and was was trying to write about just the heartbreak of, of seeing firsthand what's going on in this part of China, um, I didn't know how to write about it in a way that wouldn't make people just slam the book shut. It was just so so sad, so so deeply sad. And um, I struggled maybe. I don't know how many months with writing and rewriting and 
trying to frame differently um, that experience of biking across Tibet. And hopefully it's not so so depressing that people slam the book shut. Um, I hope it, it also comes with a lot of uplifting moments. Kate, I wanted to thank you for speaking with me today and recording this interview. I was so happy to have journeyed with you through the book and getting to work with you and eventually publish it. And you've been a truly great partner, even if we haven't yet traveled together. Thanks, as always. Thanks, Kate. For everybody listening, be sure to pick up a copy of Lands of Lost Borders out in August. And we're so excited to have Kate on the podcast. So thanks, Kate. Thanks a lot. Take care, you guys. Thanks. Bye.